wonderful passage and we began last week hearing these wonderful words from Colossians 3 verse 1. You have been raised with Christ. They are words of victory, uh, words of a victorious revolution that you and I, we together, and that is who Paul means when he says you in verse 1, we have been raised with Christ. It is news of revolutionary change that he has brought about in our life and he is bringing about in our lives, all by the mighty power of the death and resurrection of his Son, our Lord. But as we saw last week, as we began to see this revolution up close, it is a hidden revolution, hidden revolution just as the risen Lord Jesus is hidden from our eyes and the eyes of our world. But again, as we saw last week, uh, those of us who have this new life that has come about through the death and resurrection of Christ, we know that at this hidden life, this new life won't be hidden forever. The day is coming when we will be revealed in all our glory as he is revealed in all his. And when that happens... When this new life in Christ appears, what will we be like? Do you remember it from last week, the four wonderful things we saw in those first few verses? We will see and our world will see the new relationship we have with our God, our Creator, a relationship that has gone from one marked by our sin and God's wrath to a relationship marked by the forgiveness of sin and his pleasure a new relationship, a new heart as well, a heart that no longer seeks and strives and longs for things just here but things above, a heart that loves Christ Jesus for all he is. He is our heart's desire. A new relationship, a new heart and a new mindset we saw. We will be those who are all that we think and all that we say and all that we do is viewed through King Jesus New relationship, new heart, new mind and out of that a new worship. No longer worshipping the idols, the gods of this world but we are those with Paul who will say Christ is our life. Christ is our all in all. That's the hidden revolution, the new life that will appear when he appears but wonderfully we began to see last week that this new life which is now hidden will even now before the day that he appears, even now while we wait for his glorious appearing, the more we are those who set our heart and mind on him, the more we are rooted and established in him, well then the more this hidden revolution will start to bubble to the surface. Such is the power of being raised in Christ, such is the power of being rooted in him as our hearts desire, such is the strength of that root system the more I am grounded in it, the more I find the the root system of sin in my life grows ever weaker. I am empowered at last to kill sin in my life. That's what we began to see last week. You remember, uh, if you were here last week, we, we saw these two big examples of sin that we can finally be rid of, having been raised with Christ. Last week we saw the power we have to put to death sexual sin in our life, to see it for what it is, idolatry and say no more. And this week we will see the power we have to be rid of sins we commit with our words, the sins of speech which are no less horrific than those we saw last week. And so with that wonderful goal in mind, being rid of sins that we commit with our words, let's pray to our God together, pray with words asking him to change us. Let's pray together. 
And I'm going to pray using the words of the song we have just sung. A breath of love, we call on you to breathe within us. We call on you as you speak to us by your word to renew us in thought and will and heart. Come, love of Christ, afresh to win us. Revive us, your church, here in every part. Amen. Tonight uh, we speak uh, of something of immense power, power for both good and power for immense evil. We speak of words. Uh, Are they not uh, one of the most, if not the most powerful gift our God has given us, a good gift in all of his creation? Words. Our God who himself is a speaking God who made us by his word, created us to be people who would relate to him and to one another through words. Words that we speak, words that we hear others speak to us, words that we can understand. How good are words and how powerful. Now Proverbs 18.21 says this of our words, our words lead to life or death. That's how powerful they are. And we know that. We know the power of words. They so much shape our lives, our thoughts. They move our hearts. We love words. The words of the great poets, the words of the songwriters, the words of great speeches. But it's not just the skill of uh, the stirring lyricist or speechwriter, is it, that shows us the power of words. We ourselves know that power. If you have lips... If you can speak words, you yield immense power. And we know that, don't we? We know that as uh, we speak words or they are spoken to us, uh, we speak many words in our life but some of them stay with us. Either for the blessing that they have brought us or the damage that they do. And our God, who knows the power of words, says this of them, he will hold us accountable for every single one we have spoken. Jesus himself says this, but I tell you that men and women will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every word they have spoken, every word. Which is why, Christian, you should give thanks for the power that came into your life when you were raised with Christ. Power at last to be rid of sin, the sin of our words. Do you see it there in our passage? It's in verse 8 of Colossians chapter 3 these sins of words. But now you must be rid, you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. As far as God is concerned, these sins are of immense seriousness because God looks at what we have done with his good gift of language, of words, how we have twisted them so that they are no longer a source of blessing and life but cursing and death. And because of that, as we saw in verse 6 of our chapter, his wrath is coming. And so knowing this, we who have been saved from that wrath by his cross and now raised with Christ, verse 8, we are to be rid of sinful speech. And again, if you were here last week, you'll, rem- you'll remember that God's solution to our sins is far more revolutionary than, than merely a rule about words. No more malice, no more anger, no more rage, no more slander. 
His revolution is far deeper because he knows our sin, when it comes to our words, has much deeper roots than that. Remember the picture I gave us last week of my brother and I trying to get rid of bamboo in our back garden, this ridiculous attempt to chop it down or or just move it a little bit, hoping we'd get rid of it. Well, that's how we work with sin so often, don't we? We make a decision, I'm not going to gossip anymore, I'm not going to slander anymore, no more malicious words. But it keeps popping up. And so here in verse 8, we don't have merely an arbitrary list of sins that we commit with our mouth, but the root system of those sins. The final words in verse 8 are really the key words. These are all things that come from your lips. What we have here in verse 8 is a pattern, the pattern of our speech sins, the path they take. And again, a bit like we did with sexual immorality, we need to trace the root system if we are to be rid of it. And so we begin in verse 8 at the base of the root system, our anger. Anger, that continual burning, churning feeling. You ever feel that? I bet you do. I bet we all do. That feeling that comes when it's stoked up in response to a, a person or a word that's said or an action. Anger. Now, not all anger is sin. That is not what Paul is saying here. In fact, elsewhere in Ephesians, he'll say this, be angry but don't sin. They're not mutually dependent. Jesus himself burned with anger as does his father. Righteous anger. You see, anger is an appropriate response to an evil that threatens that which God has declared to be good. It's right to be angry about that. But the anger that Paul is speaking about here in verse 8 is not that sort of anger, it's a twisted anger, as we'll see. But at this stage, what I want you to see is this. This is where sins of our words get their energy from our anger. And at this point, it's an unspoken anger. It doesn't have to have words. It's unspoken, but it's not inactive, is it? You know that about your own anger, your frustrations... Anger is something we do with our whole body, isn't it? It affects everything. It's not just a little thought here. It's... And uh, I think we adults, uh, especially perhaps the English, are are, are good at hiding anger. But you see it in children, don't you? If you want to know this sort of whole body angry experience, let me invite you over to my house uh, sometime and uh, you'll meet my second youngest daughter, Evelyn. She's two. And she has perfected the art of whole body anger. If she is frustrated about something or feels wronged in any way, the whole body is involved. There's the stamping of the feet, there's the quivering of the lip, the clenching of the teeth and the... And I reckon as much as we like to hide it, our anger is just the same as hers. And it's not always a burning anger, is it? Sometimes it's icy cold. You ever felt that sort of anger or experienced it from someone else? Perhaps that's that's your your sort of anger and uh, you kid yourself that you're not an angry person because for you anger is all very cool and passive. But it's there, isn't it? In our thoughts and our attitudes, in our judgments, in our mental words. And consider the relationships we have in which we experience these stirrings of anger which will lead to sins of speech. Our marriages and families. Anger that is stoked by missed promises or unthinking behaviour or forgetfulness or 
the slightest thing and the big things. Or the workplace. The frustrations with colleagues or bosses or underlings. Or perhaps as a customer you felt that anger, the, the failure of a company to fulfil on their promises or the intrusion in your life when the call comes in the middle of dinner from the other side of the world, someone wanting to know about your computer. And then there's this, and I think this is at the heart of the words that Paul wants us to be rid of, the anger that we feel in the church family. Rich fuel for anger here. Unmet expectations, broken promises, careless words, feeling isolated, misunderstood, offensive decisions. Ever felt that anger, frustration? What Paul is saying here in verse 8 is anger sooner or later breaks out into words. Rage words. And at this point in the pattern that can go one of two ways, either into malicious words or slanderous words. Malicious words are the words of anger we speak directly to the one who has angered us. And in this I think we feel at least uh, partly justified, at least I'm being open and honest, at least I'm telling the person who's angered me how I feel. But the honesty of it is a flimsy defence for what our words actually are. Words that express our ill will towards them. Often hasty words, words that we regret. Nasty words, words that even in haste are crafted to hurt, to damage. And again, you see that in our relationships, in our marriages, in our families. The words of you always this or you never that. Or the daughter that says to her mother, I hate you. Or the words of hasty comparison, you're nothing like... The words of past failures, this isn't the first time, is it? Loud words. Or the same in our workplaces, malicious words to a colleague and especially to an underling, as we'll see as this chapter goes on. There you are in the operating theatre and the nurse once again fails to listen properly and you let fly. Because you're in the business of life and death. This is serious stuff. Mistakes matter. Well, so do your words. And they too are in the business of life and death. And the same is true in the church family. Our malicious words are perhaps polite here. They can be there. Malice clothed in faux concern or undermining words or aggressive words. Often words that are not spoken with lips but with the pen or the email. But if it doesn't go in that direction, it goes in this direction, slanderous words. Words of anger spoken not directly to the person we're angry with but to another. Words designed not to build up that person but to damage their reputation. Again, you see it in our relationships, in our marriages, words of complaint about your hopeless husband to a friend or a family member caustic words about our children, words we say again out of some sort of fake concern, words that unite you and the hearer against another and how we love that type of unity. Again, you see it in the workplace. What a breeding ground for slander, for gossip, the workplace is. Words that cost us nothing and yet they are death words. And again, they are here too, aren't they? Such a rich breeding ground for slanderous words. 
And very often, uh, Paul says in verse 8, these angry words of malice or slander are seasoned not with grace but with filthy language, violent language, language designed to increase the blow. And how horrific sins of speech really are when we see them. How easily, as the scriptures say, our throats become open graves. Which leads to this question. Why do we do it? Why do we speak these words? Why do we use this good gift that God gave us to curse, not bless? Why words of anger and rage and malice and slander and filth? Why? Well, we have our reasons, don't we? Lots of them. Why we think we say them. Now, let me ask you, why do you think you speak words of death? What's your excuse? Is it other people? A situation you're in, uh, the traffic, your busy life, the finances, the weather, is it the car, the job, the family, the neighbours, the wife, the husband, the children, the boss, the co-worker? What causes these angry words in you? Is it friends? Perhaps it's God. If only he'd do this, then I'd be less angry about our alibis are legion. And we kid ourselves that we can be rid of such words simply by changing these things that have, in our minds, caused our anger and our words or maybe changing the surface of things. But we're back in the garden with my brother and I with the bamboo. We're merely chopping away at the surface. Again, if you want to be rid of such words, you have to get to the roots. If you want to kill sin, you need to apply the poison that God has given us, not merely to the surface, but to the very heart of the root system. And that is exactly what our good God does for us by his word. I mean, this is the key thing we saw last week. This is the heart of our God's revolution amongst those he has raised in Christ. By his spirit, his powerful spirit, he speaks the word of grace to us in all its truth. And if you are those who receive that word by faith, it will cut to the very heart of things, the very heart of our sin. And so we turn from the words we speak to the words he speaks, firstly about our sin. You know, I reckon this is true of all sins, but especially of our words. We can so easily see the fault of others with the words they use, the gossip they commit or the malicious words they use but be so blind to our own. And so that's why we do indeed need this mirror of God's word to have him hold it up to us and to tell us the truth at last about these sins, waving away our puny excuses. The excuse of, well, she brings out the worst in me or he pushes all my buttons or you don't know the pressure I've been under or I was only telling the truth. The truth? Really, says God's spirit, well, let me lay this truth on you. Luke 6.43, a tree is a tree is a tree. You recognise what sort of tree it is by the fruit it produces. A fig tree doesn't produce thorns, it just doesn't happen. Nor does a heart that is set on things above, set on Christ, produce the words that we so often speak. For it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Look in the mirror, says God in James 4. What causes these words, this fighting amongst you, these divisive words, don't they come from the desires that battle for your heart? Why do I speak with malice or slander in my family or in the workplace or here, even here? 
It's because there's desires. There are things that my heart is set on. I want them. And I am angry with you because you are frustrating me. You're the reason I haven't got them. Now the truth is such desires, even for good things, become evil desires when they become what my heart is set on. Because my words were never meant to be controlled by the desire for something in this creation. My words which come from the overflow of my heart were only meant to be controlled by a heart set on Christ above all things. Such that even if my heart's desires were not fulfilled in any other way, if all the other desires of my heart came crashing down, if, if I had him, I would be full. Only a heart set on him will overflow with words of life. But instead, when we desire above him acceptance or comfort or power or success or anything else in all creation, then we will inevitably commit grave sins with our lips. For out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when it comes to our angry words, no more excuses, says God. Listen to his truth. At the root of such words is idolatry because your heart has other gods who compete for his worship. You see, the person who who you speak words of death to gets them because they threaten what you cherish. So let me encourage you tonight, search your heart. These words of slander or malice or filth that we say, as you say them, what's in your heart? What idol is being threatened? Is it the God of power, your power over this other person that needs you to win again the argument? Is it your reputation as you need to strike out with words so that those around you hear that you're still in control? Is it an opportunity that might be lost? Is it the God of pride or the God of man or perhaps the fear of man? You see, when I see this idol, this yearning for something other than Christ, then I see my angry words for what they really are, idolatry, plain and simple. And I see why the wrath of God is coming against such speech. I see how desperately I need his forgiveness and I see why I need to hear not only his word about my sin but the word about his son, the word of his grace in all its truth. And as to that word we turn now in verse 12. Have a look at verse 12. Really all the way through this letter to the Colossians, Paul has been filling their hearts with the word about his son. He wants them to be He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ and so he does it again in verse 12. Such wonderful words. Consider how this word exposes our idols and consider how it can capture our heart again for Christ. You are God's chosen people. You have been made holy. You are dearly loved. What word could be a better word to hear for the one who discovers their sin is infinitely worse and more deep-rooted than they'd ever imagined? What word could be better for a sinner convicted of their guilt to hear these three things from the God that they are guilty before? I have chosen you. I have made you holy and I have dearly loved you. That's the word that needs to dwell richly in our church. Chosen. 
God who made all people and yet amongst all people, you who are joined to Christ, you are his treasured possession. You are those with whom he is pleased. Nothing in us warrants that status, absolutely nothing. In fact, the opposite and yet freely he chose you. Unconditionally, out of his mighty sovereign grace, you are chosen and you're holy. Our God is holy. Only what is holy can be with him. Only what is holy will be embraced and welcomed by him and bring him pleasure and yet hear his word of grace. No more lies. In Christ you have been made holy. At the cross you were changed forever. That's not your achievement. It was a gift. You died with him and with him your sinful nature was laid low in the grave and with him you were raised forever, forgiven, without blemish, free from accusation. You are holy. And then there's this one. Perhaps the jewel in the crown. You are dearly loved. You have been loved. Is that not one of our deepest longings? Don't we fear its lack or its transience? Or hear God's true word to you. Don't be afraid, he says, you have been lavishly loved. God has poured out his love upon you in such abundance in his son that you cannot take in its dimensions. How that word should calm us. Our deepest needs calmed. Our need to protect our status calmed by these words in verse 12. Our need to win with our angry words no longer there. You, I, we together have been chosen. We are holy. We are loved beyond all our imaginings. What a word. That's the word of Christ. That is the truth that must dwell richly in our church family. Because this is how we set one another's hearts on things above. We heed the command in verse 16 to let this word, the word that they, the Colossians first heard from Epaphras as he raced back from Ephesus with this wonderful news, the word that was bearing fruit and multiplying all over the world, well here in this church, that is the word that must dwell richly. It's a great phrase, isn't it? Dwell richly. The word is to live lavishly amongst us, excessively, such that it shapes our hearts and minds at all levels of our gathering and that's our vision. And when it says word dwell richly, it doesn't mean that we have endless readings, long readings of the Bible every time we get together or forever there's something else to take in, some new teaching. I like to think of this verse as a bit like a chocolate mousse. I remember the first time I came across uh, Nigella Lawson's chocolate mousse. I'm not much of a cook, I must admit, but uh, there it was when I was first uh, given a taste of this uh, by Liz, this tiny little cup, tiny little cup with this little chocolate mousse in it. And I'm thinking, this is pathetic. And where's the rest? You take one little bite of that thing and it blows your head off. Such is its richness. Can't believe how much sugar must go into this tiny little cup. That's what we want with God's word, the richness of it to dwell in us. That's our vision as we get together as a church family on a Sunday and we hear the word that we're hearing tonight in Colossians that it will dwell richly as we hear it as a church family, as we go across there for coffee, as we sing together. 
as we get together in the week in our small groups and that word dwells more with us and as we spend time on our own in the word that that same word dwells richly. That's why after the summer our goal is going to be that each week in the sermon outline there will be this same passage with one thing to meditate on and one thing to pray for each day of the week so that this word dwells richly. There will be more about that after the summer. But it's also why I'm so passionate about our small groups. This is where we, as verse 16, teach and admonish one another with this word. Because as I've said before, as Bonhoeffer says so brilliantly, he says, the Christ in my own heart is weak, but the Christ in my brother's heart is strong and sure. I need him to keep telling me this word, that I am loved, that I am chosen, that I'm holy. And often that's going to be about teaching one another this word of grace so it knits us together as a community as we saw back in chapter 2, growing in our assurance. And sometimes it will be admonishing one another with this word, addressing one another's failure because we are all works in progress, helping one another be putting to death what is earthly in us. Such conversations are to be a rich part of our life together. And even when you get up to the whole church level, from the pulpit to the coffee, and then this, do you see it in verse 16, this wonderful surprise? Even in our singing. Isn't it wonderful that one of the key ways God gives us to let his word dwell richly is in song. The word of Christ is to be wrapped in music and lyric and song so it dwells richly from the first moment we get together to the last. Our songs are to be no mere sideshow. No, we sing and make music filled with the word of Christ because we are glad and thankful in him and we long to have our brother and sister next to us just as glad and thankful. Which, as an aside, as a wise person said to me this week, makes all the more perverse that all too often our words regarding our music and singing together is malicious and slanderous. How perverse. In this command to let the word of Christ dwell richly, there is profound opportunity, isn't it, to bring blessing to our church family by our words. The word of God's grace and all its truth has such power, enabling us, verse 16 says, to let the peace of Christ rule here. The peace, the settledness, the shalom that comes from knowing that I am chosen and holy and dearly loved. The peace that ends the envy between us, the striving, the peace that ends the fear and the competition, that ends the need I have to get back at somebody with my words. And this word dwelling richly among us has the power to finally enable us to be rid of sin. For I see my brother or sister in this church family for who they really are another one raised in the very image of their creator, so precious to him. How dare I damage such a creature with my words? And it is a word that enables me to help my brother and sister in Christ be rid of their sin, to take this power seriously. This community is to be one where we realise that we don't replace the lies of sin with mere silence. We're good at that when we see one another's sin. Uh, We think the polite thing, the loving thing to do is to be silent. That's not loving. It's as Martin Luther King once said, he said, we will remember not the words of our enemies but the silence of our friends. We replace lies and silence with a word, the word of truth, 
the truth about our idolatry, whether it be sexual sin or speaking sin or whatever it may be. We don't stay silent, we speak this word. And not as some new form of competition between us or a way of gaining reputation over one another, but because we, like our God, love one another. And we, like our God, long to see one another renewed in the image of our Creator, so we want them to be rid of sin. And finally, this word, dwelling richly, has the power to clothe us in love. As this word dwells richly among us, we are given a whole new vocabulary, increasingly getting rid of words of anger and rage and malice and slander and violence. The word about his son, about his love, chosen holy, well, it clothes us with power to speak new words to one another. Words only one raised with Christ can speak, words of compassion as God has spoken to us. Words of humility as the word made flesh was among us. Words of forbearance, not harsh words or slanderous words or malicious words but words of life, fruitful, multiplying words. And so brothers and sisters raised with Christ, let us tell the truth about our angry words and why we speak them. Let us listen to his word of grace that we are chosen, holy and dearly loved and let us let that word dwell richly among us for our good and his glory. Let's pray together.